I've lived 19, 20 years without basic human essentials and human rights. I was happy. So I can take this risk because if it nets back to me having nothing, I'll just go back to being happy again. Hello and welcome to The Ascent. I'm Guy Gillen, one of the co-founders and managing partners at the private equity firm Tenzing. We're passionate about the human stories in business. So in this brand new series, I'm getting under the skin of some of the UK's and tech world's most interesting founders, entrepreneurs, and CEOs. Building up a company, often against all odds, is a journey of courage, determination, and self-belief. The will of ordinary people, just like you and me, to bring their vision to life while overcoming endless challenges and adversities is one I find incredibly impressive. I'm constantly inspired by the drive of these leaders and want to share their experiences with you. So I'll be finding out what motivates them, what excites them and what keeps them awake at night. Not only are they super interesting people with remarkable stories, but they have heaps of useful tips and advice to help us in our day-to-day -day lives. First up is Dean Forbes. At 42 years old, Dean has three successful private equity exits under his belt two of which as the CEO, and the most recent of which was the sale of Core HR, one of the foremost human capital software businesses acquired by Access People, where Dean is now president. Dean has had serial success in transitioning leadership over from founders and is addicted to the challenge of leading institutionally backed private businesses. Understandably, he's not only one of Lloyd's Banking Group's 50 most ambitious business leaders, but he's also shortlisted for their Entrepreneur of the Year Award. Dean grew up in a council estate in a single parent family. His route out was professional football, only to get dropped in his late teens by Crystal Palace. With no plan B, Dean worked his way up from windowless tech call centres to being one of the most preeminent PE CEOs. The rags to riches story doesn't define him. Neither does he want to be the BLM poster boy. He's just addicted to the challenge of building amazing high performance teams and realising the potential of the company and the people within it. And I'm thrilled to be able to share his incredible story with you. Enjoy. Dean, thank you so much for spending the time with us this afternoon. I've been privileged enough to be a voyeur watching elements of your career. And thanks to social media, I've seen that built up. As you know, we're super excited about investing in the HCM space. So to kind of watch you grow and develop has been pretty impressive. So thank you very much yeah, for brilliant. spending you. the time. A lot of the listeners to this podcast will be either founders or CEOs of private equity businesses. And so I'm quite keen to approach it initially from like the founder perspective and particularly that you've taken over from founders. I'm quite curious about that. So having such a successful CEO career, you must have some really strong super strengths. And how do they differ from founders, do you think, as a kind of professional CEO from a founder? Oh, wow. Well, I always say I have the utmost respect for founders for lots of reasons. And one of the main ones is I just don't think I could ever have the courage and the skills to start something from scratch and bet, you know, my career and finances that I could scale it. So I really have the utmost respect of founders. And I've been privileged to work after some great ones. I think the main difference is often the, the critical thinking and emotional detachment that I can sometimes bring to the table. Because, you know, it's very easy to understand why somebody who's built something from scratch and poured their life and soul into it becomes very attached to that project and can sometimes stop seeing the wood for the trees. And I think often when I come in, we end up taking a set of fairly obvious decisions 
and changing a set of semi-obvious things to put the company back on a positive trajectory. So if I had to boil it down to one key difference between myself and founders, I would say it's probably that just that critical emotional detachment that leads to sometimes some clearer thinking. That's quite a cultural change, isn't it, to have sort of such, I guess, clarity of direction and often when that involves some level of change. How do you find that as a sort of cultural shift in the business and the team that you're working with? It's the hardest part because staff more often than not are energised by working for the founder, the guy who started the thing or the lady that had the original idea. And this company has become synonymous with that individual's name and personality and you see that throughout the business. And then suddenly somebody new comes in and it's not just the shift of a team, it's the shift of a business and a culture and the way that things have been done and, and the handshake agreements that staff had with that founder and the trust you know, the family-oriented trust that exists between staff and the founder. And then suddenly you come in placed by private equity, the money guys who, you know, staff don't often feel great about. And you have that brand over your head and, and now you're the clinical, you know, finance person is often how, how people view it. So it's always guy the hardest part, trying to shift the culture without damaging the good that's there, but kind of pivoting to a maybe new or refreshed culture that's going to get us to where we need to be. It's always the hardest thing. And have you got any um, Dean Forbes secret sauce to that? Or do, do you have a playbook in terms of re-establishing a new culture? Anything that you think would be consistent from the approaches you've taken? You know, I wouldn't describe it as a playbook, but what I've learned is to make the changes as fast as possible, which doesn't always mean immediate, but make them as fast as possible. So in one scenario, I took over from a founder and I was I was desperate to preserve the culture. Mm. And after nine to 12 months, I realized, you know, that just wasn't going to work. I wasn't that founder. I couldn't walk and talk and behave the way that he behaved. So trying to walk in his shoes was actually inauthentic. So then I just kind of stepped into my own personality and drove a culture that I was comfortable with. And I look back and regretted not doing that sooner because we would have made more advancement faster had I done that. So I, yeah, I wouldn't really say there's a playbook or a recipe for doing it, but once the assessment is complete, if there's a part of the culture that doesn't work or needs to be changed or a team that needs to be decommissioned and set up somewhere else, you've got to just get on with it and, you know, and, and do it. So that change in talent of the, let's say, the C-suite and the middle management team that are closest to you, I sort of read that that's something that you think that you've been lucky or been relatively, it's never let you down, I don't think. Talk me through the judgment in people and how you go about that change. Yeah, that probably is something that served me well throughout my career, kind of making those choices about the people that get to be around the table. And I think that comes a lot from sports, right? I got a very strong sporting background, mm. played team sports my whole life. You know, I appreciate what can be achieved if the team is talented, committed, and there's a, a common sense of purpose. So I do take a lot of time in choosing who gets to be in the dressing room or who gets to be you know, mm. on the board, on the exec table. And I think my number one thing, once you get beyond talent, is the person any good? Once you get beyond, do they have the experience that you need or can they grow in the job? Once you get beyond those things, my number one is what does success in this job and on this project mean to the individual, right? Because I don't think people do their best work if they come to work for me or if they come to work for the company. I think they do their best work when they want this to work for themselves or if they need it to work for themselves. So I spend a lot of time trying to find what is this going to do for this individual? What is it going to do for their career? You know, maybe somebody 
needs the money out of this project to achieve a lifestyle milestone. So they're going to put everything they have you know, into it. Maybe this person is in the upward trajectory in their career and I'm giving them an opportunity to be a first-time exec because that's the pathway to what they really want to do you know, in two or three jobs' time. Or maybe somebody's coming off of a failure and they now need this to, to correct their career. So I'm looking for what is it going to mean for them when I'm not on the phone or, or I'm not in their face or I'm not emailing them and, and the board aren't on all of our back? What is it that's going to get this person up and doing the job at 150%? For themselves and I've almost always had that in my exec teams and I'm actually quite proud of what a lot of those people have gone on to do you know after we've spent time on a project. And with private equity backing does that in itself open you up to a broader area of talent than perhaps the founder was able to access before? The private equity can help because of the network sometimes. Mm. The biggest help is they change the story right, right. so you're able to go to an exec and say, listen, this is a five-year project. Find that nugget that it's going to mean for that individual, right? Five-year project, here's what it means for you. Here's what it's going to allow you to do that's meaningful you know, to, to you. And then beyond that, the world is your oyster. And so private equity gives you that story. When it's the founder, and especially if it's a business that's been around a while, sometimes that impetus is lost. You know, why should I spend my, the next five years of my career here when you've been around for 25 years and you... you you know, you've only got this far, even though maybe the distance travelled is pretty impressive. Private equity can give you that impetus to, to change the narrative and that attracts different types of talent. And and uh, as a black CEO in private equity, that's pretty rare. <laughs> I know you're well known for like building really high quality, diverse teams. Does that come from your ethnicity or do you proactively seek it or does it create its own vortex, as it were? Yeah, it's a funny one because I've never... And maybe sections of the black community will be outraged by this, but I've never sought to build a team that's representative. I've never yeah. thought there are eight seats here, two need to be orange, three need to be green, one needs... I've never sought to do that, ever. What I have done, and I've done this because I have a very, very strong personality and extreme you know, conviction of my own ideas, right? Um, so what I have sought to do is kind of make sure there are people around the table who are equally strong-willed, perhaps I don't express it in the same way, but equally strong-willed and equally strong-minded who will challenge the thinking and will speak up and will put themselves and their bodies and their careers on the line for what they think is the right thing to do. And that leads you to diversity, right? That leads you to yeah. not have a set of people that you know come from the same place you do, have the same experience you do, have the same skills you do, because you're just in perpetual agreement and I know I need saving from myself. I know every idea I have is not a good one. And if it's just a team full of deans, we're going to do all of the good stuff that springs to mind and we're going to do all of the crap stuff that creeps into my head. You know, at KDS, the CFO was a, an Iranian refugee who came to France under some really like interesting circumstances. And she's such a powerful lady who had some great ideas and wouldn't be, you know, pushed around. At core, our CFO was uh, 15 years older than me, Geordie, who was born in Germany. Very different wow. set of experience. And just having those different views and experiences around the table leads to higher quality outputs. So, so that's why I've had diverse team, because you just get... I think you get better outputs. Mm. And I've been quite deliberate in building those teams. But for that reason, which I know people will... Uh, some people will scratch their heads about, but it's, it's true. So a perfect team for you as a C-suite or a top team, top table of quite opinionated people that are prepared to sort of 
stand their ground and challenge. And, and you come over, as you say, very determined, you're very single-minded kind of individual. So how do you negotiate or manage those dynamics individually? Do you focus on you know, alpha versus alpha? Do you drop back and how do you influence that to be a high-performance team? I've become self-aware on my own journey, right? So I know I've got better at reading my own behaviour. So if we've had a very important strategy meeting and I come out of it and think, I just did 80% of the talking, I know that's a bad thing, right? I know that that's a bad thing. So I'm going to go back and talk to people and ask and poke people as to why they didn't speak up. So there's a little bit of self-discipline and self-governance in there to go and pursue feedback. And the other tool I've used is to make sure you never punish people for challenging you, especially in the early stages of the relationship, right? Because the first time somebody raises their hand and says, I don't believe in this strategy or I don't believe in these targets, you know, and you blow them to pieces, they're probably not going to do that again, right? So the first couple of times they do that, a little bit of self-discipline again, you kind of have to be engaging and provide a safe environment for that to happen. But also, you know, you, you often have some people on the team and then you bring new people into the team and they watch the dynamic. They see people speak up and they see people challenge you and they see them still employed the next day. So they come to realise and appreciate that that's just the way we roll in this yeah. team. That's the way we behave in this team. You know, and it's a good thing. And I also try and be quite, not spectacular, but quite visible on those moments when I've been resolute for 10 months, we should do it red. And then I realised because somebody said green is better, that green is better. I'm also the guy that comes back and says, Jesus, I was wrong for 10 months. I've been an idiot. You know, I wasn't listening as I should have been. He's right. We're going to go green now. So all of that, you know, tries to create a safe environment for those stimulating, passionate, high energy discussions to, to take mm -hmm. place. I enjoy them as well. Like I often call it a sport. Um, I, I enjoy them. And you, your background is initially sales, a really high-performance sales leader, and often coming into founder-led businesses, a lot of the sales is either orientated around the founder because they're a relationship, and they're often very wary of building professional or institutional sales teams. So what are your experiences of taking that from a founder-led sales environment to like a professionally-led sales team, and any sort of top tips or learnings from that? Um yeah, that's probably issue number two in a lot of founder-led businesses. And, and, you know, just to be clear, there are a lot of great founders and great founder-led businesses, right? And I just, I think it's a privilege to often get to take over from some of those guys. But I understand and empathize a lot with why perhaps they haven't sometimes built those professional sales organizations. Because if you've built a company and it's scaled by doing things this way, it's very hard in the heat of success to just suddenly pursue an alternative way that might be better. Right? So if you've built a business from zero to 30 million in revenue and then somebody turns up and says, well, actually, you should professionalize sales and you're thinking, I've got 15 years of experience that this works. It's hard to just say, actually, I'm going to stop doing this and try this new method out. The thing that's often worked for me is a bit of coexistence with the new world and the old world so that you can see the new world begin to take shape and you can course correct it, actually, if it's not working as well or as quickly as you'd like to and not to shut down the old world too soon or too violently. Now, in one situation I had, we were making zero sales for a few quarters, mm -hmm. right? So that, that made it easy just to say, yeah, yeah. I don't know what we're going to do next, but we're not going to do that anymore because that's getting us nowhere. So, so we're definitely going to stop doing that. But in a lot of other situations, if I look at core, you know, that was a gradual transition towards professionalization. We had a, a sales organization that would sell based on commitments, that will do whatever the customer wants, will write new features, and we'll beat anybody on price. And we were winning deals with that approach, not surprisingly, but that wasn't 
a sustainable EBITDA-oriented mm. approach. So we had to gradually, you know, shift to a more, you know, more professional approach. Mm. And so this sort of succession from founder to, in most this case, your experience, you, but a professional CEO, often hugely emotive kind of transition. If you were speaking to like founders, how would you tell them to prepare for that, both not just themselves, but to prepare their business to mm. improve the chances of a successful transition? Well, a few things spring to mind. The first and probably most important is the highly visible endorsement of the new individual and they have to stick to that no matter how they feel about the new individual emotionally yeah. once they cross that marker of this is the person who's going to succeed me however that happens and sometimes that happens elegantly and sometimes that happens inelegantly but once we're across the line it's so helpful when the founder is in the town halls in the corridors for a few moments or on the email saying this is gonna work this is the person this is why they're going to you know, work out. This is why they're going to be good for us. That really helps. And I've had you know, situations before where that wasn't quite the endorsement and that cost all of us, including the founder who was still a shareholder. So I think that's one. Um, the second is information. So if you have the privilege of being able to anticipate this happening, readying the information in a non-biased, no-complexion way is, again, super helpful for the new person coming in just to have at their fingertips the um, uncontaminated lay of the land. That is super helpful because in situations before, I've had founders who wanted to continue to prove they were right after the transition and they, uh, you know, they compiled the data that proved their case and it was kind of like, look, this isn't court. You know, we, just, we need all of the information here. So anything that can be done to prepare and make available and transparent uncontaminated information is too. And one of the things that was really helpful was, I'm trying to find the right way to describe it, kind of background mentoring or, or not counselling, but I got into a, a cadence of having a twice a quarter dinner with a founder yeah. that I took over from. It let us have a few drinks, it let us you know, have a meal, and I could say I was struggling with something, or I could say, why did you do that and not that? And we took the hostility out of it that way. And we could just exchange ideas because, gee, I mean, that person had built that company and run it for, in that case, 17 years. So I had a lot of information and I was really lucky that they continued to come to the table and let me tap into that. So, you know, those are three things that I think can be truly, truly helpful if you're preparing to hand over the reins. That's interesting. The ongoing involvement of the founder and often they've got, um, there's an element of secret sauce about them and it's often not documented and... Right. you know entrenched within the business because it's the business is generally reliant on them do you prefer the founder to be involved in some capacity in the business as far as the rest of the team are concerned or do you prefer the sort of cold turkey approach uh, I prefer them to be available to the business and me as the business needs as opposed yeah. to ongoing I took over from a founder great guy a good friend of mine now uh, and he remained in the office for the first six months post-transition. And it was one of the stupidest things <laughs> I ever allowed to happen. Because we just never got over him for six months, right? We just, yeah. people constantly referred to decisions he'd made. And so that didn't work. But he's also the founder with whom I would 
I'd have lunch and dinner with regularly and it was so, so helpful. And he was so helpful and he taught me so much in that context. And then we would still use him at shows and public events because he, in a lot of ways, was the industry and he people saw his face and saw the industry. They didn't see that when they saw me. So being able to still lean on him in that capacity was hugely valuable. Yeah, and I assume he was still a shareholder and therefore kind of economically. Yep. So he'd attend board meetings, but try and keep him as a shareholder rather than a management board, shareholder board type thing. Exactly. And then on, on occasion, once we got into a good relationship with him, on occasion, we'd be struggling with a product problem and we'd say, look, can you jump on the phone? Because he had such brilliant perspectives on topics like that. And he would lean in, you know, in that environment. What wasn't helpful is when he was kind of hanging around and, I'd look at a product roadmap and say, Jesus, you know, this has changed a lot. Why has this changed? And I'd learned that there was, you know, some background conversations that were taking place and he was still inadvertently influencing that, you know, that didn't work. So tell me about growing up then. How did that inspire you to get into business and leadership? Well, it didn't. I think my, uh, I think I've always somehow had a relationship with responsibility, right? So I'm the oldest mm. of three I would help my mum out with the household. So I've had responsibility from an early age. I was captain of every football team I played for, you know. So whichever room or environment I was in, I seemed to end up being whatever yeah. the tag was for leader in that context, the prefect yeah. at school. So I guess I must go looking for responsibility. You know, the, the way I grew up and the place I grew up, my life was just about not having to live as an adult in the circumstances I had to live in as a child, in a lot of ways. I mean, I'm very grateful for my childhood and great relationship with my mum, who was a single parent. And I look back with nothing but fondness on you know my experience as a child, well, largely fondness. There were a few things which were actually tragic, but those aside, it was a brilliant time. But as I've grown and become an adult, it's become clearer to me. It's ironic, I didn't realise as a child, but as an adult and then as a parent, I've realised like how difficult that was, right? how little money we had, how difficult our life was, how much, you know, we went without as a four-person family. And I think that has driven me, right? That has absolutely driven me to provide for my mum and my brothers and, and my family, and now my wife and my children and my extended family, to make sure that none of us have anything close to that experience. And that for generations in my family that come after me, that we do things that set them up to be you know, successful and, and have mm. great lives. That to me is like my number one advantage. I've lived 19, 20 years without a lot of things that people consider to be just like basic human essentials and, and human rights. And I lived 20 years without those things and I was happy. Yeah. I was really happy as a child. I had a great, great childhood. It's not until I had kids that I realized that children shouldn't have that childhood, but I had a great childhood. So you know, I operate now saying, I've lived with nothing and I've been happy so I can take this risk because if it nets back to me having nothing, I'll just go back to being happy again because I was like I was happy then. And, I, and I've been in business situations, I've been in negotiations, I was selling a company where, in fact, in one situation I was selling a business where the person on the other side of the table, because they didn't like our negotiating position, threatened to crush me in the business as a result. Right. You know, you're being so unreasonable, actually we're going to come after you and we've got you know, lawyers, and we've got enough people to just suffocate your business into extinction. And it didn't bother me because I thought, well, you know, if that's what you want to do, you know, go ahead. And if I lose my job and my house as a result of it, I'm sure it will be fine because I've been there before. <laughs> I've been there before. And actually, in that negotiation, holding out was the thing that got us the great outcome in the end. Yeah. And had I been petrified of losing stuff, 
I probably would have yeah. handled that uh, differently. It's a great negotiation, isn't it, where you don't actually have anything to lose. Right. But so it's interesting, so like money is important as a sort of foundation for your family, but you recognise it's not money that makes you happy. Well, no, money, we can't, I can't let you take that line because private equity guys will listen and think I'll <laughs> show, show up to work for free. <laughs> um, in our industry, money is, is a scoreboard. Yeah. You know, the size of yeah. the exit is a scoreboard. The multiple is a scoreboard. Yeah. As a CEO, what you took out of that deal personally is a way to record the score. So the numbers are important to me in that context. But I don't go into a project saying I have to get 20 million out of this or 50 million out of that. I just recognize that numbers are the way we keep score in yeah. the sector. And then secondarily, I value my time and what I bring to the table. So you have to compensate me appropriately. But it's because of that more than I need 10,000 pounds more or less. It's just, yeah. you just have to compensate me appropriately. And then yeah, there's my, uh, there's my family. I'm, I'm grateful my children are homeowners. I'm grateful my mum, with whom I was homeless, has chosen her house, you know, and mm. been able to provide that for her. So, yeah, it's not... I don't have a craving to be worth, you know, £200 million. Pounds. Yeah, X, Y, Z. Yeah. No, no, not yeah. at all. Did you always want to be in business growing up? <laughs> I don't know that I always wanted to be in business, but when I look back at my life and think, well, actually, you've been hustling for a long, you know, a long time, right? So I remember being at school and we found a place, Ridley Road Market in East London, that sold, they looked like leather belts, they weren't, and they sold gold letters, not real gold letters, but they sold mm. these gold letters. And me and a friend figured out that you could buy the letters to spell Moschino, which is a well-known designer. Yeah, jeans, yeah. Right, so we, we did that and we would take those belts to school and we would sell them and it was probably one of the most financially... <laughs> one of the best financial businesses I've ever been involved with. So we were doing that and selling those businesses at school. We were buying these belts for four pounds and selling them at school for 15 pounds. And we were buying like, you know, more sweets and trainers than we knew what to do with for a period before school said, of course, you can't do that anymore. It's counterfeit goods. And I've got, you know, 10 stories like that between 12 and 18. So I guess I've always somehow been like that. But I didn't grow up thinking I'm going to run a company. I'm going to be a CEO. I'm going to be a businessman or, or anything like that. I thought I'd play football. And when that stopped, I didn't have a clue what I was going to do. Yeah. So tell me about the football, because I know you grew up and you often played football with kids a lot older than you. And I'm just quite curious as to the psychology around that. And I just wonder if some of the lessons you learned there have really informed how you become a leader and a motivator of people. Oh, man. Yeah, the two biggest... I guess, character influences that when I look at how I behave now and try to lead now, the two biggest influences there come from where I grew up and football. And there are lots of lessons, and we could spend hours on this topic, but there are lots of lessons there. But I think the two dominant ones, in football and I guess in most sports, you're absolutely conditioned to the next cycle needing to be an improvement over the last one. Yeah. Right. So if you play football, you come back for a season... If you just avoided relegation, this year you want to avoid it by a slightly bigger margin than you avoided it last year. If you finished second in the league last year, now you've got to finish first. Right? That's how you come back and you start the cycle and you start to train with that as the goal. That's just the way sport works, that this run is supposed to be better than the last one. If you're an athlete, you're trying to knock a second off of your time. So I think that helps me in business you know, to naturally roll into the next quarter or the next fiscal year. It's totally automatic for me that this must now be better than the last 
quarter, year, week, month, right? That's absolutely natural. And as a result, I'm conditioned to sometimes the disappointments that come on that journey because you don't win every game, you don't meet your numbers every quarter. So I'm always disappointed as a competitor, but I'm not disappointed as a person. I'm disappointed that I need to do better and I'm okay that I'm going to come back in tomorrow and do better because I'm conditioned to losing the odd match at football and just kind of getting up and, and going again. And I think that helps me a lot. And I've seen people around me who perhaps haven't had that conditioning struggle a little bit with, oh, Jesus, we've got to go again. Like, why do we need to grow 25% again? Why aren't these targets big enough? You know, they struggle with the constant intensity of improvement. But I learned that playing sport. And the second one is that on our estate where we grew up, there was this green in the middle of the, of the estate, which we called the cage for some reason. I don't know why we called it that. It actually wasn't the cage. It wasn't the cage at all. Um, but we called it the cage. I think there was a Nike advert that happened in the cage and we just... Oh, I remember that, yeah. Too, actually, I think that's yeah. why we called it the cage. And everybody on the estate would play football there and it was pretty much the only place on the estate where you could play football. So what would happen is you'd have kids from 6 to 16 playing in the same match and, of course, our estate had you know every ethnicity you could imagine on it mm. and every profile of humanity on it too, right? Really you know, nice and civil people who you struggled to notice because they were so quiet right through to the loud, rambunctious bullies who you wanted to avoid. So you had, I don't know, a 35-person football match happening with all shapes of humanity and shapes physically, you know, taking place. And there was just this thing of pride on the estate that you wanted to be in that game. Like, if you weren't in the game, you felt inferior. So I learned to force my way into those games when I didn't have the physical attributes to force my way in, perhaps didn't have the skills to force my way into those games. I wasn't the loudest... So I had to find ways to get into that game and then stay in that game. And sometimes staying in that game meant standing up to a bully who was you know, a lot bigger than you physically, so you couldn't overpower him. Sometimes staying in that game meant you just had to try a bit harder and play a bit harder. So I learned all of those things about dealing with different types of people in that circumstance. Right? I learned to deal with alphas who were more powerful than me in that circumstance. I learned to stand up for myself just enough so that people didn't carry on taking liberties with me, but not too much that I ended up in a whole different set. So I, I learned so much about dealing with different types of people in that game and just like living in that environment, right? It wasn't just the moment you played that game, you had to be sharp in those ways. You had to be sharp in those ways as you moved around the area. But those skills or those ways of dealing with people, I still use today. Not every alpha who is confronting me in textbook alpha way do you need to meet with the same energy. And I do that today in business the same way I did when I was eight in the cage. But football was your first passion, didn't you? become a professional soccer player at one stage, weren't you? Oh, it's funny. You know, 21 years in business and some things that have gone well and I would consider a success, but I never escape you know, what is actually probably the biggest failure of my life, which is not becoming a, not becoming a footballer. Yeah, so I did, uh, I played all of the kind of representative levels up to kind of London and county level and had a good time at Crystal Palace. And then when it was time to get really serious and get the long-term professional contracts, uh, I wasn't good enough. And that's when you shifted into tech world, did you? So when I didn't get a contract, Fortunately, I didn't do what a lot of my other friends did who, you know, went for three-month and six-month short-term contracts with different clubs and their football careers died over four or yeah, five years. painful, slow death. Slow yeah. death, yeah. And then they were, you know, 25, 26, having to find a job for the first time. Mine died quickly, thankfully. 
And the guy who was helping me at the time found me a job at Motorola doing cold calls. So I stopped playing football on Friday and on Monday I was making cold calls in a windowless office in Hounslow, <laughs> which was no fun. Yeah. <laughs> it was horrible. So what made you stick at that? Same thing. I cried for the first two weeks of going to work there. It was just such a cultural shock. Uh, mm. And my friends, all of my friends were still playing football. So I had to take myself out of my social group because I couldn't deal yeah. with the laughter and jokes and banter of what had happened at training that day when I'd been at work with two 20-minute breaks and an hour for lunch, <laughs> which was... My breaks were longer than their uh, their time at work, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know? And uh, yeah, and after a while, I got so embarrassed that people in that office were looking at me as the person who wasn't doing a good job and kept creeping off to the toilet for 15-minute stints to cry, that something just switched in me. And same thing, really, I said, you're all going to look at me at some point and say he was really good or he is really good at this the team leads here are going to be thankful that I got a job here at some point because I'm going to do that well and as soon as that happened and the pride kicked in I actually started to do pretty well I still hated it but I started to (laughs) do it for pride so that was your break into business and from there you went to ISIS yeah ISIS was a small telecom startup and had a great time with those guys as they were building that business from very small to kind of 40 people, so that was a good learning curve. But then I went to Primavera, which was an American software company just getting started in London, and that's where things really, really took off uh, for me. And you were pretty much running half the company when it sold to Oracle for, what, 500 million? Yeah, when we sold to Oracle, I was 29. And I'd never asked for a pay rise in that time. I'd had a few. I was a million miles off of the market rate for somebody who was doing the job I was doing. But, but I did have equity. So at 29, I had a you know, good, good few points of equity. Mm. And suddenly the 20 and 30 grand a year of salary that I missed out on paled into insignificance yeah. when we <laughs> traded. So you, you were then headhunted to KDS as head of sales, climbing to CEO and another huge sale. That's right. Then to Core. And then Core as the CEO after that. Yeah. And yet another phenomenal sale, all amazingly successful exits. Most people <laughs> do that once or twice, but yeah. you keep doing it, even though by the time you were 29, you were effectively sorted financially. <laughs> what is it? Is it like a sport for you? Why do you go again each time? <laughs> Why go again? Uh, I love the challenge. I'm addicted to the climb. That's what it is. And I know that because after the exits, I get depressed for a period. I get very, very low, you know, as a person. There's nothing I like more. And it's a very, very unfortunate drug in a, you know, in a lot of ways. And I need to find a different way to, to yeah. deal with this. But there's nothing like going into KDS, which was a great business set up by a great founder, and then figuring out what you and the team can do to get that business to its next point. And then you sell it to American Express, you know, a brilliant blue chip tier one brand who say, what you have created here is so desirable, we're willing to pay more than we've ever paid for a technology business up until this point, because it can add a lot of value to us, to American Express. And the same with Core, you know, where you're able to kind of go and have that influence and change the trajectory of that business. And then you get to the end of these journeys and stand at the top of these mountains and you go, wow, like what a climb that has been. A couple of times we nearly fell, a few times we nearly died. You know, we had a few days where we were starving, where frostbite kicked in. But look at us now, right? We're at the top of this mountain that is really hard or nobody else could have climbed this in the way that we did. That high is the thing I need to replace because in every situation when I've experienced that, immediately afterwards, 
comes an unbelievable low. And the only thing I've found so far is, uh, is to go and find another slightly higher, slightly more awkward, slightly more dangerous mountain to, <laughs> to go and, uh, to go yeah. and climb. But it has to stop. It, it has to stop at some point. I've done the three exits now, which have a combined exit value of a billion dollars, well over 5x money across the portfolio. And what I want to do now is I want to do one for more than a billion. That's the thing that I want to do, just so I can look back and say I did geographical CEO, I did CEO at KDS in that circumstance, I did CEO at Core in that circumstance, and now I've done CEO again with something with sufficient scale to command a billion-dollar valuation. And then after that, hopefully, I'll be able to drink wine and smoke cigars and to, my old, yeah. <laughs> to my old age. I'm going to take a little bet you won't, but there we go. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about your foundation, the Forbes Family Group, which I hugely admire. Oh, I, I love that. And in some way, that's me preparing my medicine, you know, to wean me off of this, <laughs> this journey that I'm on. Um, so we started Forbes Family Group for three reasons. The first was we needed a, a more structured vehicle to handle our own investments. So we've done a lot of investing over the years in property. We just needed a, a tidy vehicle to put those things in. However, as a result of that, and where my wife and I are now, I guess, financially, what's never made sense to me is the availability of low-risk, high-yield investments that come to us as high-net-worth individuals. Right? So we get calls from, I got called the other day, uh, actually my lawyer was working on a deal where the financing had dropped out and they were desperate for somebody to step in and that they were willing to really improve the terms if somebody could come to the table very quickly. And it's, there's almost no risk in that investment. But the buy-in price is a strong six-figure buy-in price. And what never made sense to me is that I'm happy to have that, but I don't need that investment. Right? I don't need an opportunity to put half a million quid to work for you know 1.5 million return. Of course, it's nice, and there are very few people who don't need 1.5 million. I'm grateful for it. But the person who needs low-risk, three to five x return is not me. It's the person who's struggling to feed themselves. Yeah. So the thing we want to do in that area of full family group is when those opportunities present themselves, we now have a network of people who we pass those opportunities onto, right? So we have a network of people where we'll say the buy-in is 250, the low threshold is five grand up to, you know, 50 grand and friends and family can participate behind us. It's all fully papered, you know, fully legal, yeah. but it, it's allowing people to get a profile of investment that their net worth wouldn't allow them to get to. So that's the first thing we're trying to do. The second thing we're trying to do is support entrepreneurs and CEOs from similar socioeconomic backgrounds to us because there's a lot of talent there, right? There's a lot of talent in that cage. And sometimes they just don't have the talk track or the experience or the look or the vocabulary to attract outside investment, right? To go and pitch to a VC company. They just don't have the profile to do that. But we understand them a bit better, so we can support them, sometimes with investment, sometimes with coaching. So that's the second thing. Uh, and then the final thing we're trying to do is community work. So we see a lot of challenges in the communities that we're from, and there are moments in time when we're able to step in and help, and we, we get a lot personally out of doing that. So at the beginning of lockdown, we observed a really interesting dynamic, which was single parents, a single parent who maybe had two or three young children 
couldn't go and stand in the line at Sainsbury's for two hours because it just mayhem, right, with a yeah. baby yeah. in a pram and a two-year-old running into the street. So we saw parents in tears because they couldn't get themselves to the shops to get essentials. So we were able to get a, a network of people together. You know, Sainsbury's were really helpful, Mothercare were really helpful, and we were able to get these, you know, packs that we were distributing to families who needed them for another charity. Because that would have been my mum. Right, that would have been my mum stood in that line. So we like to kind of, not like to, but where we see those things, we feel really good to be able to step in and, and help. Right. Um, I'm going to do some quick fire questions, if that's all right. Sure. So what's your favourite book at the moment? I read really trashy thriller novels, like, you know, garbage thriller novels, just to decompress my brain. But I did read, uh, what was it called? Um, First Break All the Rules which was a really interesting leadership book, actually a lot about transitions and a lot about the first 90 days in leadership, which I thought was, was a really good book, really helped me, by um, Marcus Buckingham. And then um, somebody that's really inspired you. Who's the person that inspired you most? Uh, inspired me most, uh, Jobs. And I know it's cliche, but Steve Jobs is a person I studied I've read all the books, I've watched all the films, I've watched all the YouTube clips. I'm a bit of a stalking fan of his. What about from like your childhood upbringing? You know, the people who have inspired me, I always say I don't want to become the poster person for kind of Black Lives Matters or, any, or anything else like that. Yeah. But, but representation, I do think, is tremendously important. And when I was 30, I met Tim Campbell, who was the winner of The First Apprentice, and we became, you know, we became really good friends. And Tim is a very important person in my career because he was the first person I saw in, you know, middle-aged white corporate world who looked like me, who talked like me. We had a lot of similarities. One single parent, you know, upbringing. He's an East London boy. I'm a South East London boy. We were very similar. And he's the first person who I looked at and could relate to. And he was doing great things in business. Mm -hmm. Come off The Apprentice and he was doing great things. And he inspired me to do better. And then the other week I had a conversation with uh, Tom Alube, who's director at the BBC. And it was like the Tim meeting all over again where I suddenly thought, wow, here's another guy who you know looks like me, but Tom's doing incredible, incredible things. And those two people are important to me because they're representative. They're people who reminded me that I wasn't alone. There were other people like me on this journey yeah. and were doing great things, had so much positivity uh, around them. And I wanted to be like them. Yeah, that's really nice. And what about one sort of super skill that you'd cherish the most? I don't have many super skills. <laughs> okay, average skill. <laughs> um, I'm not a brilliant people person, but I do understand what makes people tick. I think that's what helps me get the best out of them. So why do you say you're not a brilliant people person? Because I'm an introvert, firstly, so, and I'm a practised extrovert because introverts seldom do well as uh, salespeople. Yeah. And as a CEO, you, you know, there's the uh, ambassadorial aspect of being a CEO, front of room or, or, you know, you're hosting the dinner. But those things aside, I like nothing better than being in my house, you know, on my own, <laughs> not speaking to anybody and looking at nonsense on my phone. Like, that's when I'm happiest. So, yeah, I, I never go looking for human company. Very rarely, very rarely do I go looking for, for human company. But I do think I understand what makes, you know, what makes people tick. I do think I understand whether to motivate that person with money, motivate that person with responsibility, 
motivate that person because they won't want to let me down personally, motivate that person because they're on their own journey and they're trying to achieve this to get someplace for themselves. I think I get to those things probably you know, quicker than a lot of people and I use those tools to both of our uh, advantage. Dean, I think you're an awesome people person and I've, I am, <laughs> anyway wish I'd had the, the privilege to partner with you in business. Oh, thank you. Thanks so much. Oh, thank you. Enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Wow, massive thanks to Dean for that. That was quite an impressive conversation. Not the conversation I was actually expecting to have. What I loved about Dean and what, in fact, I love about him is that he's kind of relentless pursuit for performance and such a serially successful person at transitioning over from founders, which is super, super difficult. And to do it in so many kind of variants of tech, one after the other, without fail, which you know, there's no luck involved when you go to that level. Dean's exactly the kind of person we'd like to work with, that drive, relentless passion, willingness to take on big challenges, high quality individual, and loads of humility. What a privilege it would be to work with somebody like Dean. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd like to listen to more inspiring stories, you can search Tenzing or The Ascent on any of your usual podcast platforms.